0: I have you loud and clear. (laughs) Hello.
1: Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. (laughs) Science. And that is to say. Physics. Medicine. Nature. Or. Time. The brain. Life. The universe. This week, why are mountains pointy? Did dinosaurs live in large herds? And we have a giant snake, a few skulls, a couple of feet, and one of the oldest rocks on Earth here in the studio. It is Q&A time and we're taking things right back to the very beginning. I'm Chris Smith and this is The Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by (laughs) UKfast.co.uk. Well, let's meet the panel of experts who are going to tackle your questions. Megan Strong is an Egyptologist. You're not as ancient as the rest of our panel. I mean that in the nicest possible way. Megan, what are we talking about when we're talking about the ancient Egyptians?
2: Yeah, it's not frequent that 2500 BC is the most modern person on the panel. Um, but yeah, roughly that's the period that we're starting 2600 BC and then up to about 323
1: BC. So, right, yeah. so about four to 5,000 years ago.
2: Yeah, absolutely. A long
1: old time. Thank you, Megan. Well, on the other side of the room is Lee Berger. Lee is from Wits University in Johannesburg, South Africa. He's not discovered one, but several, in fact, new species of ancient human ancestor. When do they date from, Lee? Well, I'm going to renew
0: from about 200,000 years back to about 2 million with Australopithecus sediba and Homo naledi. So basically a potted history of where we all came from. That's it. And most people
1: struggle to discover a jawbone or something in their lifetime career. You've managed to get basically whole skeletons of these things and you have sitting on the desk with you some of them.
0: I brought a few of my friends with me.
1: Great to have you with us, Lee. Uh, Also here, Jason Head. Jason walks with reptiles and dinosaurs. He does that at the University of Cambridge's Department of Zoology. Jason, to help orientate people, when were the dinosaurs around?
3: So the oldest dinosaurs go back to about 240 to 245 million years. And of course, they're doing fine today with modern birds.
1: Which is good to hear. So we'll talk about dinosaurs with Jason later in the program. And now way back in history, the Oldest in terms of time on the planet, but not you personally. Owen Weller is a geologist from the University of Cambridge. What do you look at?
4: I study early Earth plate tectonic processes uh, using the Natural Laboratory of Arctic Canada. And so I look at rocks that are as old as 3 billion years old. So I'm afraid I eclipse all of you here.
1: And how old is the Earth in total?
4: The Earth is 4.56 billion years. Uh, so we've still got another third of Earth history after that.
1: It's quite ancient, isn't it? Thank you, Owen. So all the questions relevant to geology and the ancient Earth, will we going... Owen's way. And as if the panel aren't already going to be put through their paces, taxed by your questions, we've got a little quiz for them coming up later in the show, and you can play along at home. Now, Megan, we've got uh, something to kick off with for you, and that's what about hieroglyphics. Uh, Matt in Melbourne wants to know how were hieroglyphics used in ancient Egypt? Was this the first form of writing? And what did they have against alphabets? And I see you have a very useful text in front of you because you've brought A dictionary?
2: I have, yes. This is a very uh, well-loved, well-used dictionary that was one of the first textbooks that I got as an Egyptology student um, and is sort of a Bible for me, really. Ancient Egyptian is a language that was written down and hieroglyphs is one of the scripts that was used to record it. It is one of the oldest that we know of. And Um, when
1: does it date from? Does it literally go right back to our earliest records of ancient Egypt?
2: So the earliest evidence that we have for simple hieroglyphs being used is probably about 3300 B.C. And so that's quite a ways back. That's into the very, very beginnings of dynastic Egypt, but not up to the point of sort of pyramids, which most people think of.
1: And so Matt slightly provocatively said, what did the Egyptians have against alphabets and things? How do hieroglyphs work? Is it like Chinese characters where where there are sounds or how does it work?
2: Yeah, so hieroglyphs can work in several different ways. The Egyptians did have characters that could function as what we would recognise as an alphabet. So you can, you know, spell out people's names, for example, that's very useful. But they could also stand for sounds. So something that we would think of as like a syllable, a single hieroglyph could stand in for that. Or you could also have hieroglyphs that would stand on their own as an individual object. So you could have a picture of a goose and that would stand in for the word goose.
1: How did people decode them in the first place?
2: So this, most people will say that this goes back to Champollion and the discovery of the Rosetta Stone, excuse me, um, was the real sort of watershed moment. People had been working on the decipherment of hieroglyphs from the medieval period. But when the Rosetta Stone was found, that really allowed people to crack how you read hieroglyphs by comparing it to Greek.
1: So that gave, this is a Greek piece of text, this is the equivalent in hieroglyphs, and so people could begin to get some insights into how the language was constructed.
2: Exactly. So the Rosetta Stone is recorded. It has three different languages on it, one of them being Greek, one being Demotic, uh, which is another script used to write ancient Egyptian, and then formal actual hieroglyphs.
1: So why did someone go to the trouble of writing that? What was the point? If these languages were around at the time and they could speak all of them, which they clearly could, why make that tablet?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think at the time it was the Rosetta Stone was found in the Nile Delta. um, And this was an area that was ruled by the Greeks at the time. And so Greek obviously being a language that they would recognize, but ancient Egyptian being the language of the country and still being used quite heavily for monumental inscriptions, which is what the Rosetta Stone was.
1: And can you read hieroglyphs now thanks to your dictionary?
2: I can, yes, thank you. Can you, you read it?
1: So when you when you look at these oh, yeah. these things, you can actually read it.
2: That is one of the cornerstones of Egyptology. You have to be able to read your hieroglyphs.
1: How long did it take you to learn?
2: Well, there's different phases of the language. So initially to get your grounding takes a good solid year and then you have to build up from there different phases.
1: It's extraordinary to think that uh, before you can actually begin to study something archaeological, you actually have to learn a whole new language in order to do that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes multiple, depending on the period.
1: It's a good selection process, I suppose. It's only only the fittest survive. <laughs> Those who are dedicated. Darwin would approve. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Megan. Right, Lee, let's turn up the heat with this question, which came in from Colin
4: on our forum. Did our ancestors lose their fur about the same time they mastered fire?
0: What do you think? Well, I think the first part is, what's the difference between fur and hair? We often speak of humans as having hair and animals as having fur, and the answer is nothing. It's the same thing. It's a semantic argument. But the the sort of uh, early part of our understanding of where we see a sort of fining and separation of hair in humans is probably at the root of that question. Uh, and we kind of tie it to two things. One is thermoregulation, the idea that, that we need sweat glands. We sweat our skin to actually lose heat. We believe that happened with long-distance walking and running and the sort of longer limb period generally associated with the origins of the genus Homo. So the answer is maybe it was associated with a fire because those two things go back a very long way now. Fire, the oldest fire that we've got, is probably about 1.3 to 1.5 million years. It's surprisingly hard to see in the fossil record. But that morphology, that wider-chested, long-legged anatomy that signals sweat glands— Maybe two million years, but, you know, don't trust these dates these days. We keep finding something every other week that pushes something further back or in a different line. We take for granted our access to
1: fire in the modern era, but what would it have taken for ancient peoples, ancient ancestors of humans to have mastered the art of fire making and, and nurturing and using fire to good effect?
0: Well, having spent the last several years down a deep dark hole looking at Homo fossils, uh, I've pondered fire a lot and the idea of fire both as a heating source but also as a light source to move into these more remote underground chambers. Fire is a tricky thing. Most animals Hate it. They hate it instinctively if you're a terrestrial animal for very obvious reasons. Uh, fire is a very scary thing. At some point in our past, and that is somewhere in our very distant past, a million and a half, two million, maybe I would suspect even further than that, part of our family tree began catching fire and catching fire is probably the first key to that. Manufacturing fire, we don't really have any evidence of until the last several hundred thousands of years, and generally the early parts of that are controversial in and of themselves, because there's a big difference between catching fire in the wild after a lightning strike or some event like that and then tending it for long periods and manufacturing it. Anyone who's ever tried to use crude implements to actually manufacture fire would understand that there's a great technological leap and probably also a mental leap that may have occurred a little later in our timeline. Indeed, you know, as someone who's tried to
1: make a fire in a camp the traditional way, it, it takes quite a bit of dedication, doesn't it? Thank it's you extraordinary. Luke. There's a tweet here at Naked Scientist from Sarah Davey who, who wants to ask you, Owen, as a geologist, do you have a favorite rock?
4: I do. Uh, that rock's called a blue schist. And as the name suggests, uh, it's a very vibrant blue colour. And uh, not only are they very attractive to look at in the field, they're also very special rocks because they tell us that there was an ancient subduction zone uh, at that locality. So that's where one plate goes underneath another. What are they made of? Uh, they're made of a principally a mineral called glaucophane, And this has a very, very distinctive blue colour, which gives it a very simple name, the blue schist.
0: I had a pet rock. Go on. Well, you know, everyone who wants to get in geology has a pet rock when they're a kid, and so I had one. I lost it, though, and it's, I've been sad ever since.
4: Oh, your life could have turned out very differently. <laughs>
1: Imagine what you could have been if, if you'd still got that pet rock today. So, Jason, interestingly, because Lee's saying about our ancient human ancestors losing their hair, but what about dinosaurs? What were they covered in? Because if you go to museums and things, you see many specimens of dinosaurs, and they show things with a skin a bit like a crocodile, but they're not exclusively
3: like that, are they? Well, that's actually a really interesting question, and there's a lot of research being done on this issue right now, and there's a lot of controversy. From certain parts of the geologic record, you have particular environments where you find fossils that actually preserve the impressions of soft tissues. With certain dinosaur groups, when we find those impressions, they often include integumentary structures that look kind of like hair. Um, They're almost quill-shaped, and they're often called protofeathers, because they have kind of a feather-like appearance to them. And so right now, there's a big question as to when do these protofeathers first show up in the history of dinosaurs? Is this a feature that all dinosaurs have primitively at the origin of the group? Mm. Or is this something that's evolved once or more than once very high up or higher up in these nested groups within dinosaurs? Certainly by the time we get to, to true birds, things like Archaeopteryx, then we see these well-developed flight feathers, and so we know what they're covered with. But whether or not T. rex, for example, Tyrannosaurus, or any of these, these larger taxa would have had an overall covering and integument of feathers or feather-like structures, it's a little more poorly understood. Amazingly, for some animals like Velociraptor, this small Manoraptorin that's risen to fame through of uh, the Jurassic Park films, um, we know they actually had probably elongate feathers running down the undersides of the arms because we found specimens that have feather quill spots on the bone.
1: So do you think uh, that the dinosaurs could have evolved to have feathers in order to conquer new patches of the earth, to access new bits of the earth which would have previously been a bit cold for them and having feathers enabled them to access and use those areas because as populations of dinosaurs and therefore competition went up in warmer spots, the, the choice spots were taken so this enabled them to go into to other further reaches because it gave them insulation.
3: It's possible, although the initial function for these these feather-like structures is not 100% known. So they may have actually functioned as insulation for the animals, but also where we find them on these well-preserved specimens, they're actually quite patchy along the body. So they're not operating, they're not presented on the animals as being a complete covering to keep them warm. But These patchy distributions suggest that maybe what they were being used for was actually communication, that they could have actually had uh, color cells in them, and they could have functioned as a form of display.
1: Thanks, Jason. Now, Owen, this question is coming from Paul. Uh, This is very geological. He wants to know why are mountains pointy? What do you think?
4: Okay, that's actually a great question. So once you've had some kind of rock uplift, the shape or morphology of a mountain is simply controlled by the principal style of erosion at a particular locality. So to generate pointy peaks, or as they're more formally known, uh, pyramidal peaks, you have the process whereby you have three or more glaciers uh, which are diverging from a central point, under the influence of gravity, and this leaves behind the pyramid. And this has given us such iconic peaks as the Matterhorn, uh, Mont Blanc, Mount Everest. And conceptually, this is how most people view mountains. It's sort of in their mind's eye, they see these pyramids. However, I should point out that not all mountains are pointy. I'm so. oh, just saying, uh, Lee's uh,
1: adopted homeland. Of uh, course, it's South Africa. If you go to Cape Town, you see a very famous flat-top mountain. It's called Table Mountain for an obvious reason. Absolutely. Well, how it's, did it's, that happen?
4: It's wonderfully named. Um, so Table Mountain is composed of flat-lying sedimentary rocks, and it's actually capped by a particularly resistant uh, type of sedimentary rock called a quartzite. And so what happens here is that you get erosion that preferentially weathers out underneath the top-lying quartzite, which leads to sort of failure at the edges, so you get steep-sided cliffs and a flat-lying top.
1: And talking of pointy things and pyramidal in structure, of course this is your bag, isn't it, Megan? How did they actually come up with the shape of the pyramids? Does it, what was their inspiration, do we know?
2: Yeah, so the idea is uh, in one particular creation myth of ancient Egypt that Egypt evolved from this mound of earth that came up from this watery void of chaos called Nun. And this original mound of earth is thought to have been shaped similar to a pyramid. And so the idea is that pyramids are a way of recreating that original sort of mound of creation. Thank you very much. You're welcome.
1: Now, Jason, this question actually has been sent to by James, who is on our Facebook page. Is it common to find different sets of dinosaur bones next to each other, or can you just assume that they're from one creature? So are they served up, beautifully on a plate, one specimen, all in one place, easy to sort out, or is it a bit of a mess that you have to try and unpick?
3: Well, it's it's a bit of both, and it all has to do with physically where the animal dies and what are the various ways in which it actually enters into the rock record so you have different kinds of what we call depositional environments these are areas where the sediments that form the rocks the dinosaurs in are are uh, actually physically accumulate and for some of these environments you can have an animal effectively fall over be completely buried and then you have a very well preserved articulated skeleton. In terrestrial environments, more often than not, what you have is an animal will die, and then you'll have some kind of water action that takes the remains and actually transports them into basically a river system or a lake system. Um, And in that case, yeah, you generally do find a jumble of bones from different dinosaurs or different animals. Uh, So you get a lot of disarticulation. Um, You have... Different kinds of preservation as well, where certain bones will actually be exposed in weather on the surface before they then get transported and buried. So, yes, it is very common. It's more common than not to find multiple types of dinosaur bones mixed in together.
0: Is that your experience, Lee? Yeah, well, ours is a field where particularly when we're looking for human ancestors, we find them one by one. Uh, Up until recently, the story of paleoanthropology was probably in excess of 90 percent of the entire record was made of isolated teeth. are isolated small bone fragments. That's exactly the situation of an animal dying on the surface and going about the usual sort of processes in Africa or elsewhere where it's eaten or dragged apart and disintegrates. More recently, though, we've been very fortunate, both on terrestrial deposits but also in these underground cave environments, finding more and more complete specimens. Um, We have complete skeletons like the little foot skeleton in South Africa, Ardipothecus, but we're starting finally to find deposits it's in, in more extreme, more protected environments where we have more and more complete specimens and we're able to put individuals together. We can do like these hands I've got here. That, that hand was found curled up just like that, just in a death grip.
1: Lee is showing us, uh, this is actually a replica, isn't it, of Homo naledi, your most recent specimen that you've uncovered at the Rising Star System uh, near Johannesburg. And the amazing thing about the work that you're now doing is that unlike historically where you'd find a specimen like this, and then you'd study it and it would be your sole preserve. Now you're, you're scanning these things and 3D printing them to produce a submillimeter precision thing a bit like that, which you can then share around the world, and, and a scientist anywhere could then begin to work on your specimen.
0: Not only can we, we do. If you go on to morphosource.org, you can actually download... Uh, any of our fossils and actually 3D print them yourself in your local 3D printer in no, your the library DIY homeowner leddy or home, <laughs> and they are they are accurate up to just a few microns of the the originals, and and it doesn't have to be a scientist. In fact, uh, the tens of thousands of downloads we're getting from school children are people who just want to have a hand
1: give you a hand as well. <laughs> uh, so, Megan, it, it wasn't just dinosaurs that got mixed up together. The Egyptians were pretty good at burying people. That's what the pyramids are all about, isn't it? Or was it?
2: Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I have to add in that that we have just the same amount of problems in Egypt of putting together complete mummies and skeletons as well, because the tombs have been lived in more recently uh, and even in ancient times they were reused many many times over so you frequently have people that do not go together and bits and pieces of mummies that you can't quite figure out how many skeletons you have all in one tomb Um, thankfully with pyramids uh, they were intended to serve for one individual um, particularly the king sometimes queens and they were primarily restricted to kings and queens of the old kingdom as well so this is a very early period in ancient Egyptian history so about 2600 to 2100 BC we're talking about and they were intended to be the burial structures this was their final resting place
1: but they didn't just put themselves in there did they because is it not the case that uh, very often the other servants or other people who would have worked on the structure itself ended up being buried there too
2: Not within the pyramid itself, no. So for example at Giza there is the main three pyramids, those were the ones designated for the kings. There are smaller pyramids, those were for the queens, and then there's an entire separate cemetery for people who actually worked on building the pyramids themselves. That they had their own separate cemetery, their own graves, some of the more elaborate burials as well. But no, they weren't actually mixed in together in the same idea and the same place.
1: But were they voluntarily in? interred or were they involuntarily interred so having worked on the structures was it was it sort of regarded as a real privilege for them to die alongside the person they were building the pyramid for
2: yeah so it's not the same idea as servant sacrifice so these workers yes they they had incredibly hard back-breaking labor that they needed to be part of in order to build these structures however it was something that was well compensated so you had living quarters while you were there you were fed well Um, there is a fair amount of evidence that they had an incredible amount of meat that was brought into the site bread beer um, which was their staple drink for the time and there's even evidence that people who broke bones or even had traumatic brain injury for example they had surgeons on site to heal them
1: were they any good at brain surgery
2: well, they they did actually live on a bit afterwards. There is some <laughs> skeletal regrowth, there is some cranium regrowth. So, yeah, they did live for a bit.
1: I think it was Imhotep was uh, someone who actually documented one of the first linkages between what the brain does and the movement of the body. But I remember reading a text where... I think it says if you if you put your finger through the hole in someone's head and stimulate the brain underneath and the person shudders and, and it's sort of linking the fact that the brain makes you move because people didn't really know what the brain did historically at that time.
2: Yeah, well the Egyptians didn't have very high regard for the brain. I mean they'd discard it when you were mummifying somebody. Through your you, nose. Yeah, Exactly, they would yeah, yank scoop it out. Yeah. yeah, you were dead when that happened so that's good. Well <laughs> you certainly were whether <laughs> whether you wanted to be or not by that point you were definitely dead. Yeah, but Imhotep he he was actually quite high regarded uh, physician, priest and is actually deified by the time you get to later periods because of his, his knowledge. So, yeah, he was quite a, a famous person for his day. So
1: actually working on the pyramids was quite a privilege then. Megan, thank you very much.
2: Hello, Katie here with a quick request. The Naked Scientist survey is still open and we really want to hear your views. It's online at com slash survey. It only takes a few minutes, and if you fill it in, you could win some Amazon vouchers. We read every word, so this is your chance to let us know what you think about the programme, or what you'd like to hear more of. That address again is www.thenakedscientist.com survey. Thank you very much. Now, on with the show.
1: You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith. And this week, we have a panel of experts taking on your science questions. If you'd like to get in touch with the program, you can email. It's chris at scientist.com. You can tweet at Naked Scientist. You can also find us on Facebook. Let's talk back to Lee, Lee Berger. You've got some guest interviewees on the table in front of us. There are two skulls either side of you, Lee, there.
0: One's an old friend, of course. One is the actual type specimen of Homo naledi from the Dinaledi chamber. This is the one... That we announced uh, almost three years ago, I guess, and we didn't know how old they were at the time. But it was the most complete uh, skull that we had. Uh, interestingly, if you're if you're looking at this skull to describe it, it's a brown skull. But the white part in the front is the nose area. We didn't have. These are some of the most fragile bones in the body and they did not preserve in those early specimens that we were pulling out. So we kind of guessed at it. The rest of it all fit together, but we had to kind of guess at what the central face would look like. So we actually put a nose on there based on uh, the way the face was angling down, and also the very advanced features we're seeing in some of the back parts of the skull. And I'm really pleased to say that we discovered a skull in another chamber, the Lacetti chamber, and we announced it about four months ago. This is the uh,
1: same cave system. It's another chamber off of uh, where you yeah, discovered these specimens. About
0: 110 meters away, again, 40 meters deep, very inaccessible. We found a skeleton there that had a complete skull. Uh, this is the skull in A.O. I'm holding that one now in front of us. and I'm pleased pleased to say, after all that work, we got the face wrong in the original <laughs> um, In the original reconstructions. It's very clear when you see Neo's nose that it's much flatter. And when I hold them up together, you can see the difference in the reconstructions. You
1: hedged your bets a bit when you guessed, because you gave him a much more prominent nose, more more towards what we would regard as humanish. Uh,
0: or a homo erectus yep. kind yep. of thing. And that was being led by some of the shape of the skull. It's clear, though, that homo and leti, Neo's skull and face uh, is much flatter, much more primitive. uh, Just to
1: describe this for for people at home, the the actual skull vault is about a bit bigger than fist size, I'd say. So this would have been quite a small-headed individual when would these have been running around on Earth?
0: When do these date from, these specimens? When I was on your show last, we said "Well, they must be millions of years old. Every scientist was trying to guess at how old Homo naledi was based on the anatomy of the heads of the body. There were several papers published saying it was a million and a half, two million, maybe two and a half million years old. We now know that this population of Homo naledi in the Dinaledi chamber is actually around 250,000 years old, between about a 180,000 and about 340,000 with a central point around 250,000 years. That is really young. It's really kind of put a landmine in the middle of archaeology and paleoanthropology because that sort of primitive ancient human relative should not have been alive at that point, according to what we'd been finding. Megan was talking about the
1: ancient Egyptians burying their dead. That's the striking thing about these individuals, isn't it? You found this in a cave system where really the only way they could have got those bodies into that cave system is that they took them there.
0: Our very controversial hypothesis that we put forward about three years ago was that the Dental Chamber was a deliberate body disposal site. They came down this amazingly narrow chute entrance. It has uh, enclosures 17 and a half centimeters wide, say seven and a half inches wide, down 12 meters, which is 50 feet or so. Because
1: the job advert you put out for people to work on this project said, I want small, skinny women. I want s- No, <laughs> I didn't say women. I wanted skinny scientists. <laughs> it's the only job advert you can actually say these days legitimately and say, I want skinny people, isn't
0: it? <laughs> That's right. And, and and so we we did hypothesize that uh, they were deliberately disposed of the dead. That's not been disproved. Uh, it still sits as the most valid hypothesis. We now have, of course, not just one more chamber, the lacetti chamber. We found another chamber. It just came out from underground uh, about four weeks ago. Now it's one thing when we talk about. Egypt or other places and deliberate body disposal like that but not with this brain. It's just very hard to fathom that they had that complexity yet we're faced with it is what it is.
1: They're very small brained aren't they? If one looks at the inside of the skull you can get some idea as to what bits of the brain might have been doing what and what the behavior of an animal may have been because it tells you about the size of the underlying brain. So if you look at these specimens what
0: what does the brain look like? Well, in fact, that paper is just about to come oh, out. Oh, damn. And, no, it's okay. I'll, <laughs> I'll, tell, it's I'll, I'll go ahead and break it. Exclusive for the naked oh, I'll, thing. I'll give on. you the exclusive. It's very complex. Our scientist who's been studying uh, our image of the brain that's pounded out on the inside of the skull – all his life said it's finally the brain I've been looking for my entire life, because it's very advanced, it's very complex, but it's tiny.
1: Did they have language? If you look, I, is there a swelling on the left hand side, roughly is, where it, the language it, center in, might be? Were it, they talking in to Broca's each Broca's
0: area is enlarged in this. There's bilateral asymmetry. We don't know if they had language. I can I can tell you though, if we are right about this sort of very complex behavior, it would be very surprised if they did not have a a language or uh, a communication much more complex than any animal communication we know of
1: so maybe not hieroglyphs megan but they could have been saying something now jason we've got this question which was sent in by jack
0: i want to know whether
4: dinosaurs lived as a herd or on their own and how do we know that thanks
1: so lonesome dinosaurs or sociable Sauropods.
3: Uh, yeah. So we, we know this from a couple of different lines of evidence for different dinosaur groups. Um, we have trackway evidence that shows that groups like duckbill dinosaurs and the large long neck sauropods were moving in multiple age class groups. So you would have adults based on the size of their footprints and juveniles and babies based on the size of their footprints um, moving in the same direction and also changing directions in the same pattern, in the same orientation, which suggests not only that the animals just weren't kind of going along the same direction, they were making the same turns, the same maneuvers, that suggests animals moving in the same direction in the same grouping. We also have a few big monospecific bone beds, which are catastrophic events where you have a population of dinosaurs that is killed usually by something like a flooding event, um, very famously There's a group of horned dinosaurs called Centrosaurus from Alberta, and there is a mass death assemblage of these animals. So hundreds and hundreds of individuals in a single bone bed in a single horizon of rock, which really looks like a large herd of animals that was killed in a flash flood event. There are modern caribou mass uh, death assemblages that are patterned just the same way that we see in these animals.
1: Absolutely amazing. It's incredible what you can infer from the footprints, isn't it? Well, that solves that one then, Jason. Thanks. You're listening to The Naked Scientists, and I'm Chris Smith. This week we're answering the science questions that you have been sending in and we've given the programme a very ancient slant because we're looking at old rocks, ancient human civilisations, the remains of ancient human ancestors and dinosaurs. With me are Egyptologists Megan Strong, anthropologist Lee Berger, geologist Owen Weller, and paleontologist Jason Head. And if you'd like to ask a question for a Q&A show like this, you can get in touch. It's chris at thenakedscientist.com or tweet at Naked Scientists. Now, it's quiz time. So, team one, that's Lee and Owen, are going to take on team two, Jason and Megan. So, each team gets three questions, and if it's a draw, we have a tie-break for you. So, team one, this is Lee and Owen. Your first question, true or false? So, just tell me true or false. And you can confer, of course. Pirates wore eye patches so they can see in the dark. Is that science fact or science
4: fiction?
0: Uh, I'm going to go false. How about you, Owen?
4: I think the eye patch was so that when they came out of the, the bottom deck, they could adjust their, their eyes to the light easier. I'm trying to think.
0: So you're going to say true.
4: I'm going to say true.
0: Oh, i got to go that. You know, they're ballast in the rocks. So. Absolutely right. It sounds like a
1: joke, but it's widely claimed they wore eye patches because they were covering over missing eyes. But actually they did this so they could see when they went below decks because they would still have one eye adjusted. Right, over to Megan and Jason. True or false, the ancient Greeks would get drunk after making an important decision. They'd know whether it was sound if they still felt the same way when they were drunk. Is that science fact or science fiction? What do you two think?
3: I kind of want that to be true. Yeah.
2: I I know the Greeks liked to (laughs) drink.
3: Well, today or historically? Well, they have
2: tons of stuff dealing with wine, wine strainers, wine drinking cups, drunken wine drinking scenes.
3: And so much is written about the the importance of wine and the philosophy behind wine. And and, and so... So what true. do you think? I'm going to say true. Today, yeah, We're going to go with true. Oh, boo! Well,
2: I
1: liked your logic, but it was actually the ancient Persians. A bit subtle this. They were from 550 to 330 before Common Era. According to the ancient Greek historian Herodotus, the ancient Persians had a ritual of intoxication. They believed that you could only tell the truth when you were drunk, so they'd drink a lot of wine after deciding on something, and if their minds still felt the decision was right when they were drunk, they considered it the right decision. I think you'd have to be drunk to come up with a rule like that, wouldn't you? Right, on to uh, round two so it's uh, lee and owen in the lead at the moment round two which is bigger we're, we want the larger of the two in this round okay uh, which is larger the number of taste buds on a human tongue or the number of stone blocks that were used to build the giant pyramid what do you think
0: oh uh, taste, buds I me, I, yeah, taste, taste buds i would go yeah we're gonna go with taste bud just because i mean they're not that big of pyramids And there's a void in them. So you're going, you're going true or false?
1: We're going. You're going the larger number is the taste buds. buds, The Larger number is the taste buds. uh, actually, it's it's not true. The pyramid wins. Did you know that, Megan?
0: <laughs> would have did, done. Would it you would have did, done. Did, did you count the void, the new <laughs> void they you, found?
1: The, the, the pyramid wins. We estimate more than two million stones were used to build the Great Pyramid. The number of uh, that number is at least a hundred times larger than the ten thousand or so taste buds on a human tongue. So, not that many taste buds. So. Currently still in the lead, you two. But let's see. The, these two the other pair might equalize now. Question for uh, Jason and Megan. What's larger, the distance from the surface of the Earth to the center of the Earth or the distance from the surface of the Earth to where the International Space Station is orbiting?
3: That's going to be distance from surface to center. Yeah. So greater distance would be the surface, the surface to the century. center. Do you know how far it is? I believe... Isn't the diameter five... Th- oh, no. Um i you. am going to a... get this wrong. Five five thousand plus kilometers, I believe, is the diameter, isn't it?
1: Uh, not surprisingly, Owen has his hand up. What, what is the? <laughs> Can I get a,
3: a bonus point for suggesting six
4: thousand three hundred and seventy-one yeah, kilometers? It's, it's a bench. <laughs> That's right. Plus or minus. <laughs> It's actually uh, greater at the equator than the, yeah, to the it's, north. Yeah, um, it's about it's 6,000
1: kilometres from the planet's surface, although there is a bulge around the equator, make it slightly larger, between the surface of the Earth and the core of the centre of the Earth. But it is only about 400 kilometres to where the International Space Station is orbiting. One all so far. So here we go, on to the final round. Lee and Owen, what came first, Coca-Cola or Tyrannosaurus Rex? What do you think?
0: Well, they're going to refer to the name there, I presume. Um, and so we've got uh, Coca-Cola in late 19th century, right? Early 20th to 30th? And Tyrannosaurus Rex is going to be later than that, I guess, on naming. What's your thoughts, Owen?
4: I mean, it has to be a, a trick question, yeah, presumably. So.
0: <laughs> Wait, no, we're not allowed to think like that. I'd go with Coca-Cola earlier.
1: Coca-Cola, okay get a bing-bong for that. The company was founded in 1892. The Tyrannosaurus Rex was given its name by Henry Fairfield Osborne, who's president of the American Museum of Natural History in 1905. So Coca-Cola has it. Right, so that's two to Lee and Owen. Um, Megan and Jason currently on one. Let's see if you're going for a tiebreaker. What came first, the discovery of the hole in the ozone layer or the first space shuttle launch?
3: Ooh. I was going to say space shuttle, yeah. yeah go with shuttle yeah you're competitive I can can feel the
1: competition oozing out of Megan that's right Columbia blasted off for the first time in April 1981 the ozone hole was discovered does anyone know what year the ozone hole was discovered it was actually 1984 by scientists at the British Antarctic Survey, Brian Gardner and his colleagues, that was in Cambridge. And they made that. They didn't make the discovery in Cambridge. Obviously, they went to Antarctica to make the discovery. But uh, they were working here when they made that discovery. It led to the Montreal Protocol in 1986, the banning of chlorofluorocarbons in fridges and aerosols and things. And the ozone hole, which is currently Australia sized, has stopped expanding. So we think that actually that was one of the most important interventions on environmental grounds we've yet made. Right, so that means we have a tiebreak situation. So here we go with our tiebreaker. Whoever gets the closest answer to this one will win. Final question: When did the last woolly mammoths walk on Earth? Answer to the closest (laughs) that I've got written down here.
0: What do you all think? About 18,000. Is that what I'm going to say? Something very different than that. Okay, you guys ready? Yeah. I think so. Okay. Yeah. okay, well
1: let's let's start with we'll go give Lee the chance first. What do you reckon? I'll say about
0: three and a half thousand years to four thousand recent ones okay, found so in three
1: thousand five hundred years ago or BC? Oh BC. Okay, you're going to three thousand five hundred BC. Okay. Uh and let's go to the other team. Let's go to Megan and uh Jason, what do you think?
3: I thought it was about four thousand.
2: No, yeah, that sounds right, yeah.
3: So we we have effectively the one. same answer.
1: <laughs> yeah. Okay, actually, the the answer is is you're probably quite surprised sixteen fifty BC is the current oh. evidence although most of the woolly mammoth population died out by 10,000 years ago there was a small population of up to a thousand woolly mammoths that were living on until 1650 BC and to put it in context as you will well know Megan mm. the Egyptian pharaohs were midway through their empire and it was about a thousand years after the pyramids at Giza were built while there were still woolly mammoths trotting around on earth so I think everyone gets the point so we have actually a perfect solution <laughs> that no one goes home any the wiser than any much a winner so very well done to everyone there Everyone pretty much wants to be breeding tigers. And we do have to limit the number of recommendations we can give because there simply isn't the space to house all the potential tiger cubs there could be.
2: In this month's Naked Genetics, we take a trip to the zoo to find out how conservationists are preserving the genetic diversity of some of the world's most endangered species, from terrific tigers to tiny snails. Plus, our gene of the
1: month is down the pub already. Listen and download now at nakedscientist.com genetics. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith. Still to come, the oldest evidence of the Earth's first mammals, and we hear about Egyptian mummification processes, plus a snake almost a metre in diameter. What does it eat? We'll find out. I want to go first, though, Owen, to you, because actually Sarah Davey, who tweeted at Naked Scientists about your pet rock, has now sent us a nice picture on Twitter of her pet rock. So thank you for that very much, Sarah. Mark in Bletchley has also got in touch and tweeted and said, great show this evening. Make no bones about it. That's ideal. I want to ask you, though, about ageing rocks. This is from Lewis, Owen. When you find a fossil or a rock, how do you work out how old it is? Tell us about your rock. You've got a rock, how old is that?
4: It's not my favourite rock, but it is the world's oldest rock. So this is dated at 4.03 billion years ago. And to put that age into context, as I said before, the age of the Earth is 4.56 billion years ago. So it's the oldest rock. To date uh, this rock, uh, we need to do some form of radiometric dating. As this uses the principle that some elements are unstable and they will decay to stable isotopes. So radioactive decay. Correct. Yeah. Uh, with, a, with a known and constant decay rate. So if we can accurately measure uh, the ratio of what they are called parent and daughter isotopes in a given sample using machines such as a, a mass spectrometer, um, then we can ascertain the age of the rock.
1: So just summarising then, you, you know that there are some, just by chance, there are some radioactive atoms in that piece of rock and we know that radioactive atoms like that break down at a certain rate, which is a constant rate, and they turn into new types of atoms. And if you count how many of each type are there, you get some idea as to how old must or how much time must have elapsed because we know how fast that process happens on average.
4: Yes, that's correct. There's actually many different uh, radioactive decay schemes, so many different uh, sort of pairs of elements that you might measure. Uh, But the most common one that we use is the decay of uh, radioactive uranium to stable lead. And we most typically measure this in a very special mineral, which is called zircon. So although you probably don't realize it, uh, zircons present in many rocks, particularly granites around the world, and it has uh, several extremely useful properties. Uh, so first of all, it's extremely durable, so it sort of can last for several billion years. And second of all, its structure really likes to take in uranium, but doesn't like lead. So when we find lead in its structure, we know that that's come from the decay of uranium in the structure from when that zircon formed or it was crystallized. So by measuring the ratio of uranium to lead in our zircon, we can say when the zircon, hence the rock, crystallized. And that's exactly what was done with this piece of rock that I brought in today to say that it was 4 billion years old.
0: Lee. So I just had a question to follow on because as I was thinking the oldest rock on Earth, are there any fallen objects that are older than that that are on Earth, like meteorites or moon rocks or whatever that are actually older than that that are on planet Earth now?
4: Uh, See, so you've caught me. I should have said the oldest terrestrial rock on Earth. You're quite, you're quite correct. Uh, so we do have uh, meteorites which do date back to the to the side of the Earth, so to 4.56 billion years old.
1: Where do they come from? Space, obviously, but uh, what have they just rained in from the, the debris that formed the solar system in the first place at some point in Earth's history?
4: Yeah, absolutely. So there's a whole variety of different meteorites that we get. And the very oldest ones, they're a particular kind, called chondrites or chondritic meteorites. And they've been really, really useful for telling us how the Earth formed because we get some slightly younger types, which are then uh, either formed of iron or they're formed of silicate minerals. And this tells us on the very early on in the Earth's history, um, we formed the Earth's iron core and the silicate exterior. So meteorites have been extremely useful for sort of probing these very, very early Earth planet formation.
1: Thank you very much, Owen. Turning to yourself, Megan, we've actually got a question from uh, Gilad in Oxford, who says... I recently read that there is a void in the Great Pyramid of Giza. Why is it there? What do you think?
2: I think it's a bit early to say, but this is uh, comes from an article that was published last week in Nature. Uh, a Japanese team went into the Great Pyramid, the Pyramid of Khufu, which dates to about 2450 BC. They used muon particles speaking of cosmic rays and other kinds of cool elements, but they they used these in order to scan the interior of the pyramid to get a very accurate sense of where all the chambers are, etc. And in the midst of doing that, they discovered this previously unknown void which rests above uh, another vaulted space that was purposefully put there called the Grand Gallery, which is a ramped vaulted structure that leads up to the burial chamber of the king. And this void is above that. As for what it's for... I think it's still a bit too early to tell. There are other what are called relieving chambers, so spaces that were purposefully built into the pyramid to sort of take off the weight from these smaller internal structures. It may be something along those lines. It could be the remains of construction. Uh, who knows?
1: Megan, thanks very much. Jason, i um, got this question here from Georgia for you.
4: Dinosaurs were around for over 100 million years. Why did they achieve so little?
3: Did they really achieve so little? I love this question so much because it it allows us to actually probe a few things about how we think about dinosaurs. So dinosaurs get their start around the same time as mammal groups do. Where we are today, we have about 5,500 living species of mammals, and we're pretty impressive in terms of the diversity of sizes and ecologies that we do today. Uh, Dinosaurs today are somewhere between 10,000 and 18,000 living species, depending on how you measure species in modern birds. Um, They have evolved intelligence. They do amazing things. They fly better than any mammal And then if you think about the Mesozoic record of dinosaurs, they achieve giant sizes on land. Uh, They have an incredible diversity of behaviors, of body sizes and ecologies. So it's, it's important to not think of dinosaurs as just being big lumbering things that lived in the past. They are one of the most successful and diverse groups of vertebrates in our history.
1: You've got a lump of one. In front of you. That looks incredible. What's that?
3: This is actually not a dinosaur. This is better than a dinosaur. Um, This is a cast of the vertebra of the giant snake Titanoboa. And so Titanoboa is a fossil snake related to modern boas and anacondas. And this animal occurred about 6 million years after the end of the Cretaceous, so after the end of the non-bird dinosaurs, and it was about 15 meters total length. So how long ago is that dating from in millions of years? We're looking about 58 to 60 million years ago.
1: Okay. Can you just describe, so people at home can actually picture this in their minds?
3: Yeah, so this is um, basically kind of a squarish vertebra with a ball and socket joint on it. It is about 5 to 6 centimeters wide and about 4 centimeters long.
1: I mean, it it completely covers my hand. If you put it it, across the palm of my hand, this this backbone bone... Yes, is completely covering my hand. So that would have been along the the, the spine of the snake and the ribs would have opened up off of that and come round towards the front of the snake. What would have been the the diameter of the snake's body then, where that
3: was? So this is one of about 300 probably vertebrae that would have composed the spine of the animal Um, and then the ribs coming off would have given the snake a diameter of about half to three quarters of a metre and the total weight of the animal would have been somewhere between three quarters of a ton and a ton and a quarter. Goodness, What, what would it have eaten? Uh, That is a really interesting question. It it occupied an ecosystem with giant freshwater turtles, giant primitive crocodile relatives, giant lungfish, and the answer is whatever it wanted.
1: (laughs) And it's a constrictor, so it would presumably have crept up on these things, grabbed them and then inspiraled
3: them, wouldn't it? With with a constriction force that no biological tissue could withstand. I cannot remember the number, uh, but it is exponentially larger than the constriction force of boas and pythons today. And, and those animals are extremely powerful.
0: Lee, I just, I, I just love being a scientist because only scientists would use the understatement of every time we find a big fossil, call it Titanoboa. I mean, that is <laughs> just fantastic.
3: Um, well, the, the original name my co-author John Block, University of Florida, wanted to call it Tyrannoboa, and I told him no. <laughs> um, I do want also want to point out this is important. Uh, Lee's specimens, his, uh, the Homo specimens, you, you can actually see the scans of them at Morphosource.org. Titanoboa is there as well. So if you'd actually like to see a 3D reconstruction of these vertebrae or download the data sets to print your own, that's where you should go.
1: Why did that organism become so big? Why is that not here today? Where's it gone?
3: So the hypothesis that we're working on is that the reason you can get snakes at large is that during this time period after the, the demise of the non-bird dinosaurs and what we call the Paleogene period of the Cenozoic, this is one of the warmest intervals in the history of Earth. You have no ice at the poles. You have incredibly warm oceans. You have tropical rainforests that are extending up toward high latitudes. You have crocodiles and palm trees at the poles. And with a, a what we used to call cold-blooded or a poikilothermic animal, we know that body size is going to be ultimately limited by the temperature within which it lives. And so what we're able to do is actually do the math to calculate how hot it would have to be to keep an animal this size alive. And so we're able to actually estimate temperatures for this interval in time. And they're consistent with a lot of other data. And so for our main hypothesis is that these animals got this big because the climate allowed them to do so.
1: Goodness. Let's hope that doesn't happen again, Jason. Thank you. Lee, back to you. This was posted on the Naked Scientists Forum.
2: Did other ancient human species ever live together? Did they interbreed and did they fight?
1: You've sort of talked about this with your examples with Homo naledi and the fact that you have these animals early human ancestors, however we might refer to them, putting bodies in a cave system. That argues they were cooperating or perhaps valuing their dead. But what about the other parts of the question?
0: I always love how questions like this always end with the sort of fight, you know, the Neanderthal fight club kind of idea of Of human origins. Well, we certainly know that species have interacted in the past. Neanderthals are the best example of that, the best known. Not only did they interact, we don't have any evidence of violent interaction, and that we do have evidence of of sex in the fact that many of us carry their DNA, a small part of Neanderthal DNA, usually somewhere in the one and a half to 3.5% 35 or 4% of DNA for Europeans or people from that area. There are others that we know that we interacted in similar ways with Denisovans, which are only known, in fact, from a finger bone that's now destroyed to get ancient DNA out that we uh, see some people on Earth sharing a small amount of DNA with them. There's a, a sort of mystery species X that was in Africa at about two to 300,000 years ago that interbred with modern humans, and we share some of that DNA. So we know that there were those type of exchanges that went on. What we didn't know were that some species like Homo naledi existed at the same time and place uh, that modern humans did. Now that's going to be a tricky question though right now because we have two lines of evidence in, in the record. We have a fossil record which is very very poor and very very rare. We have an archaeological record which is rich and vast because it's made of stone. And so we see this sort of technological spread and cultural spread across these regions. And we have always, particularly in Africa, assumed that in the last half a million years or so that that was all humans. It was large brain things. But suddenly you have things like Homo Naledi popping up that are saying, whoa, wait a second, you know, it's not that simple. Things didn't just go extinct Humans and and human relatives are a lot like other animals with existing lineages that went along. The the hobbits on the island of Flores have shown us us that. And I think we're going to see a whole lot more of that happening as we begin to open our minds and open up new areas, begin to explore more. There's a lot more out there, a lot more mysteries to be solved. Thank you, Lee. We're talking about a mystery
1: that got solved. A big one was solved this week. There was a big announcement from the University of Portsmouth. This is for you, I suppose, Jason, perhaps you can comment on this, that a student doing an undergraduate project was looking at some rock samples from the south coast of England and found these tiny teeth which, it was announced, are the earliest evidence of mammals existing on the Earth and they date to about 147 million years ago. Why does this matter?
3: Well, they're not the earliest mammals. There's a little bit of confusion. What's significant about these teeth is that they help us put down the divergence between placental mammals. So, Eutherian mammals, which are the people in this room, your cat, your dog, most of the diversity of living mammals, and marsupials, the metatherian. So, your pouched mammals, your possums, your kangaroos, your wallabies. These are the oldest, we think, unambiguous at the moment, record of placental mammals. So there are all sorts of mammals that are much older. What this is, is it's a nice example of a pretty clear anatomical indicator that the divergence between marsupials from placental mammals had occurred basically by the beginning of the Cretaceous period, around 147 million.
1: The mammals that were around at that time were obviously in competition with the dinosaurs is that what kept them small because these were small animals we think weren't they at, at least when these animals first evolved 30. probably because they they were continuously turning into lunch
3: that's a generally accepted idea that basically the diversification of dinosaurs would have kind of inhibited the the ability of, for mammals to radiate into new body sizes and new ecologies. And sure enough, after the end of the Cretaceous, fairly soon after the, the demise of the non-bird dinosaurs, you do see this big diversification, a flowering of modern mammal groups. It takes mammals a little while to get much bigger, actually. They don't really achieve giant sizes until fairly late in their history. But yeah, so for the most of the Mesozoic mammals are very small. They're probably nocturnal. They're fairly ecologically limited, although in mammals' defense, there is actually a uh, a dog-sized mammal that we know from the early Cretaceous of China called Repenimamus, which uh, actually has dinosaur remains in its gut.
1: Oh, right. So they did get their own back to a certain extent. You mentioned something interesting there when you said they were probably nocturnal. Is that sort of supposition of the fact that you've got something very hungry with big teeth running around during the day that had very good eyesight, a dinosaur. So if you came out during the day, you were more likely to turn into lunch. Therefore, these early mammals probably came out at night and they could
3: tolerate the cold better because they were warm-blooded. Is that where you're coming from? Actually, it has more to do with looking at behaviors in living mammals today. And one of the things that we can do is we can look at activity patterns across all of living mammalia. And we can actually reconstruct the ancestral activity pattern based on what we can see for all the living ones today. So if you look at... Four different groups of living mammals and you look at their relationships and they're all nocturnal, you can assume maybe their ancestors were nocturnal as well. So when that's been done for a huge number of species and mammals, what we actually find is that the most parsimonious solution is that mammals would have been primitively nocturnal. We also can see from the anatomy of their heads, their skulls, that these are small insectivorous animals with pretty decent-sized eyes. And based on both of those and comparisons with modern insectivores today, the most likely interpretation is that they were nocturnal. So we're the unusual
1: ones. Coming out during the daytime, we've evolved to become day-active. When actually we're bucking the trend, most of our mammalian ancestors would have been night active.
3: Most of mammal history is being small, nocturnal and afraid of reptiles. It is after the, the, the Cretaceous, again, it's during this big flowering, this big diversification of, of mammals in the early Cenozoic that we definitely start to see really diurnal mammal ecology really develop.
1: Thanks for that, Jason. Well, moving on, here's one to shake things up for you, Owen. This is from Claire on Twitter at Naked Scientists.
2: What is a tectonic plate? Is the Earth unique in having them? And has it always had them?
1: What do you reckon?
4: Uh, Well, that's uh, three questions in one. So I'll uh, I'll start with the first one. So a tectonic plate forms part of the outer uh, relatively cold and rigid part of the Earth that we call the lithosphere. And essentially, as you go into the Earth, the Earth warms up quite quickly. And the effect of increased temperature on rock strength is to decrease uh, rock strength. So the lithosphere is the relatively cool part where rocks are relatively strong and relatively rigid. But as you enter the Earth, they become much weaker and they can, in fact, flow on geological uh, timescales. So this is flowing in the solid state. So tectonic plates and the lithosphere is just the strong outer layer. And below this sits what we call the asthenosphere. So the analogy is that tectonic plates are like icebergs, uh, which are flowing on the asthenospheric mantle below.
1: Wegener had the idea that this might be happening more than 100 years ago but it took quite a lot of data to emerge subsequently to to prove that, that this was actually happening what about the other part of that question which was other planets is the earth unique in having this geological activity or do other planets appear to do the same thing
4: Uh, So it's a great question because it's in fact an ongoing area of research. So certainly other planets show evidence for geological activity. For instance, uh, we can see on satellite images of Venus that we have enormous volcanoes and uh, we can date the surfaces of planets by sort of how pockmarked they are. And so we can see that some planets are essentially being resurfaced uh, by volcanism. However, what we don't see is the sort of geometric arrangement or jigsaw of tectonic plates that we observe uh, on the Earth today. However, one really exciting new area of research is on one of the moons of Jupiter called Europa. And researchers there are suggesting that we do, in fact, have a sort of Earth style plate tectonics where you have the creation and destruction of plates. But these plates are, in fact, made of ice. So we call this our icy tectonics, and it's a sort of ongoing area of research. So bottom line
1: is you you need what we have on the Earth, a squidgy interior with something fairly rigid on the outside and not too heavy to bob around on that squidgy interior. And that moves things and jockeys things around and remodels the surface. And so as long as you've got that sort of configuration, it doesn't really matter where it is or what it's made of, the same processes will play out.
4: Absolutely. It is a little bit of a Goldilocks situation where you need the right thermal profile and you need the right chemical properties. So for example, Venus has a very similar size and thermal structure to the Earth, But it's thought that there's not quite enough water in the deeper parts of Venus such that it cannot flow. It's essentially too strong on geological timescales. Whereas on Earth, we have just enough water buried in the mantle, which allows these rocks to flow in the solid state.
1: So there you go. We knew Earth was just right. Now, Megan, we began with you. So we'll give you the final say. We have this lovely question from Caitlin who wants to know.
2: What is the mummification process and what is the best preserved mummy?
1: Megan, what do you think of that one?
2: So the mummification process is a means of artificially preserving the body. And the reason for that being is that the ancient Egyptians felt that they needed to have their body preserved intact in its entirety in order to have an afterlife. Now for most people, that probably just involved being wrapped in a shroud or a reed mat to keep the elements off of you, or even just backfill from the grave that you were being put into. However, if you were wealthy enough or if you were well-connected to the king or something along those lines. uh, You could have more of the Rolls Royce treatment of mummification, uh, which was incredibly detailed and took up to 70 days. Most people understand that they removed the internal organs. They would have preserved those separately in their own jars. And then the whole body would have been put into a bathtub or a vat, basically, filled of natron salt, which is a, a salt that is native to Egypt. And that would have completely desiccated the body so that you would have had this perfectly preserved human. Then that was anointed, wrapped in yards and yards of linen. uh, And then you would have had your mummy. The best preserved mummy is either Ramses II, Ramses the Great, or his father, Seti I. And he was actually used as the stereotype for the mummy movies that Boris Karloff was in. So I think he looked pretty good.
1: So that's your favourite. That gets your vote. Yeah, I think. Thank I like you very best. much. Well, that is it for this week. Thank you very much to our guests this week: Megan Strong, Lee Berger, Jason Head, and Owen Weller. The producer was Izzy Clark, and do join us at the same time next week when we'll be exploring some of the technologies that could revolutionise, we hope, the future of healthcare. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the SDFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith and thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.